News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Time to take a look at what's happening specifically with international students in this country and how they are being treated in Canada. Joining me to talk about this is Noor Azri, a Lebanese immigrant as well, associate producer for Canada Land. Noor, thank you so much for taking some time with us today. Thank you for having me on. It's nice to be here. Well, we've been certainly hearing from some students and student bodies who are protesting uh, tuition hikes when it comes to international students. What concerns do you have when it comes to Canada's international education strategy? Um, If I'm being quite honest, international students are painted to be the be and and be all of the and, and the saviors of the Canadian economy. But we're making it extremely difficult to, one, retain these folks and, two, make it even a little bit possible that they don't uh, suffer extreme mental health crises in being here. Immigrants are more than the labor that they provide, and they're more than a boost to the economy. They're more than numbers. And, you know, we're seeing, like, lifting limits on work hours that might help international students find high-quality jobs. But... That also just simply encourages longer hours of low wage, low skilled work, and it doesn't really facilitate career progression or transitions into permanent status. We're really not setting up international students to succeed. Do you think there's kind of uh, the perception, the the incorrect perception as well, that international students have a lot of money and are able to afford these higher prices? I mean, there. I, I can't speak on behalf of all international students, but again, like we are not a monolith. We have people who struggle to make ends meet. We have people who work like day jobs and night jobs while they are attending full time, like full time school. So again, like it, regarding international students as a monolith, I think is just a lazy generalization. Right, absolutely. Like as it would be to to put any group uh, of students or any group really to suggest that, uh, you, like you say, that they're all kind of in the same scenario. What would you yeah. like, or what do you think, given what you've seen in your experience, what could be done differently that would help help those that are in the situation like you described? Well, I have four main things. One of them is that there needs to be an increased amount of support for newly landed immigrants, that's international students and a whole array of other migrants. There's like heightened rates of mental health issues and crises, mostly exasperated by the tolling, isolating, and quite frankly, difficult uh, immigration process. You know, we have students arriving late to classes because of the backlog and that you know, really sets people up to fail. Two, there needs to be more accountability at the federal level to ensure that these ambitious numbers, uh, whether that's international students, permanent residents, are practical. I'm all for immigration. You know, I'm an immigrant myself. But as long as there's the proper infrastructure on the federal level to board these people, it then becomes reckless. Three, there needs to be a stronger federal and provincial cooperation. The federal government in this country proves itself countless times again that it either cannot or will not properly coordinate and cooperate with the provinces to make sure, you know, people are not just showing up um, and the provinces aren't ready to accept them. 
And the fourth one, and I think the most important one, would be there needs to be a mental shift uh, in some folks. You know, we've seen heightened blame for international students and immigrants for failing and crippled infrastructural issues in Canada. You know, in Canada, our infrastructure is riddled with issues, controversy, but placing the blame on a, popula- on a population that, you know, has very little or no say about current politics that can really impact or change the reality of the infrastructure is, again, just lazy. You know, we're forgetting that the country is still recovering from years of pandemic measures, an impending recession, labor shortages, and more. So I think those four key points are really what I want to hit home today with. All right. And we only have about a minute left. I'm curious as well, Canada did launch a very aggressive campaign as far as boosting the number of international students. Do you think that was maybe too much or or they should focus on a smaller number and a more more doing the things that you've mentioned to make the experience better? I'm I'm not arguing that we need to lessen or maybe stop, uh, you know, heightening immigration. You know, it's proved itself time and time again to be effective for this country. But I think what needs to be done is um, is a coordination on all fronts, uh, whether that be the immigration sector, the healthcare sector, the housing sector, to really pick pick itself up by the bootstraps, because. Immigration is nothing without houses to live in, without uh, without jobs to work in, if that makes sense. No, it does. Absolutely. Nor, we'll have to leave it there for today, though. But thank you so much for your time and thank you for coming on the show this morning. Thank you very much. That is Noor Azri, a Lebanese immigrant as well, associate producer for Canada Land. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, let's shift focus a little bit. And joining us now is Canada's National Defence Minister. Anita Anand is in BC today. Minister, thank you so much for taking a few minutes with us. Well, thanks, Joe. It's great to be on again. It's great to be back here in British Columbia. I'm welcoming home two ships, HMCS Vancouver and HMCS Winnipeg. They've been away for six months in the Indo-Pacific, so it's great to be here. Uh, you're in, in welcoming, welcoming them back, uh, and I know you're going to be uh, spending a bit of time at CFB Esquimalt later today. Can you talk a bit about the Indo-Pacific strategy? I know you announced it within the last few days. What specifically are we looking at as far as Canada's response and what Canada's doing? Actually, you're right. It was about a week ago where our government announced the Indo-Pacific strategy in Vancouver. As a Pacific nation, Canada will increase its military presence in the Indo-Pacific. We have four new defense initiatives backed by half a billion dollars in new investments, including a third frigate to our annual deployments, increasing Canadian Armed Forces participation in regional exercises, launching a new Canadian capacity building program, which will include mentoring and will be based on our Women, Peace and Security initiative, as well as helping partners build their cyber capacity. So those are four of the initiatives that we are launching in the defense area. Uh, When you made this announcement and talked about the strategy, I know you also mentioned China. Uh, You said that it was no secret that China is becoming increasingly assertive as it advances interests and that it has values very different from Canada's. Uh, Can you talk, though, about that relationship and how this plan and this strategy plays into that? Most definitely. 
first and foremost, this is a strategy for the entire region, the Indo-Pacific region. And our goal is to uphold peace and security in the region together with our allies. We are a Pacific nation ourselves. Stability is essential to global security, and that's why the region is so important. In terms of China, we will challenge China when we need to. We will cooperate with China when we must. Um, But this is really about the region as a whole and not one country. But when we look at what other countries are doing as well, and Japan announcing within the last couple of days that it is going to work in the next five years to reach the spending that countries are supposed to be doing, 2% of the GDP for defense spending, what does it say when we see a country like Japan doing that, and even with an announcement like this, Canada not reaching that goal? So the 2% of GDP is a NATO target, and our defense spending has been on an upward trajectory. We are raising uh, defense spending by 70% under Strong, Secure, Engaged, our defense policy. We are the sixth largest defense budget in NATO. And so, as I said, we are continuing to be focused not only on the Indo-Pacific, but on defense generally speaking, especially following Russia's illegal invasion of Ukraine earlier this year. We have to remember that prior to 2015, under the previous government, defense spending dipped below 1%. So as I said, we're on an upward trajectory and we'll continue to make sure that we're responding to global situations, including in the Indo-Pacific as well as in Europe. But even with the upward trajectory, we're still not at that NATO target. And again, when we see a country like Japan, which is even closer proximity to China, and when we see a country like that making the commitment, is there a goal for Canada to make that 2% commitment? Well, I think you're right to point to Japan, and we have to remember its geographical proximity to China, something that Canada is not exactly placed in that same region, in that region. But we aren't taking our eye off the ball. We are eyes wide open on China. We committed $8 billion in new spend in Budget 2022. Uh, We have spent and committed uh, additional monies for continental defense. And in June, I announced almost $40 billion over 20 years on continental defense and NORAD modernization. So as I said, if you take, Jill, our defense initiatives in the Indo-Pacific, in NORAD, in NATO, our defense spending is increasing in all of these areas. And that's something that we have not seen in previous governments and really should be taken note of. Uh, You mentioned uh, the attack in Ukraine as well, and this morning we saw and read more reports of missiles that have been launched at Ukraine from Russia. Do you feel that Canada is doing enough to support Ukraine in this ongoing war? So from a military standpoint, Canada has sent over 600 million dollars in military aid to Ukraine, and recently we committed another $500 million, bringing us to over a billion dollars in military aid committed for Ukraine. That is incredibly important in terms of Canada's ongoing commitment. Part of our military equipment that we've sent includes armored vehicles, includes M777s, ammunition for the M777s, rifles, 
uh, ammunition for those rifles, winter clothing as winter approaches. This is even more important, made by Canadian suppliers, that is. And on top of that military aid and equipment, we are also training Ukrainian soldiers. We've trained over 34,000 Ukrainian soldiers in terms of techniques that they can use on the front lines. That training's continuing in England as well as training Ukrainian engineers in Poland. So our military aid is comprehensive. It is across the board in terms of equipment, tangible equipment, as well as training. And we're also transporting military aid on behalf of our allies from Presswick, Scotland. How concerned are you with the escalation or the ongoing escalation as far as Russia's attack on Ukraine and where it could go from here? No one knows what Vladimir Putin is thinking or what he will do next. So my purpose and my goal is to stay focused on helping Ukraine. Wherever I go in this country, I see Ukrainian flags flying from cars and hanging from porches. And even earlier this year, I was here in Victoria, Ukrainian Cultural Center, and I know that in this region, as well as across this country, The conflict is incredibly important and continuing to stand up for Ukraine's sovereignty and the rules-based international order is very important also. I am very concerned that Russia is attacking civilian targets, attacking infrastructure, weaponizing winter, and we need to make sure that as a country we are doing whatever we can for Ukraine. That's why overall our budget our government has committed approximately $3 billion plus towards the fight for a sovereign Ukraine. All right, Minister, we'll have to leave it there for this morning. But thank you again so much for making some time for us. Uh, It might snow while you're here uh, in BC, but uh, maybe not. But thanks again so much for being with us today. I love the snow, and I'm so happy to be back in British Columbia. Thanks, Joe. All right, that is Anita Anand. That She is Canada's National Defence Minister. This is Mornings with Simi. Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi this week. Well, there is news that Iran has scrapped its morality police. After more than two months of protests, these protests triggered by the death of Masa Amini following her arrest for allegedly violating the country's strict dress code when it comes to women. So we wanted to talk more about this. Joining us to do that is Cynthia Farahat, an Egyptian-American author of The Secret Apparatus, also a political analyst and counterterrorism expert. Cynthia, thank you so so much for your time this morning. Thank you for having me. Do, do we believe the reports that the morality police have been scrapped or what is your take on this? Um, so whether they decide to do it or not, I think it's uh, fair to, to assume that it's only a temporary solution. Uh, I do not trust and I do not believe the protesters trust the Mullah regime. The founder of the regime, Ayatollah Khomeini, said that dissimulation, which is deceit, is his religion and his and the religion of his forefathers. So the Iranian mullahs are experts on deceit, concealment, and uh, lying to reach their ends. So I think uh, whether they decide to do it or not, it's going to be a temporary solution. What they hope to do, in my opinion, is to uh, try to stop the protests 
while they gathered the strength to crack down on a much more draconian level. So when we hear from the attorney general in that country saying that the morality police are, are nothing to do with the judiciary, that they've been abolished, uh, it, it could potentially or could possibly mean, like you're saying, that to, sure, maybe they have abolished that, but the practice or what the morality police were doing will continue? Yes, it could be. They could stop it temporarily. And then as soon as they gain control over the country again, it could come back uh, in a much worse form and uh, with a retaliation against the protesters and their families. It's basically, uh, I believe, uh, they're trying to reach some form of truth. I do not think of it as a policy change uh, because I do not believe that they can change the policy. If they let go of the morality police, That means that they would let go of their stronghold over the oppression of the of the population of Iran. I don't I don't think they can survive without the morality police, to be honest with you. And if they deactivate it temporarily, I I think it's only to uh, try to stop the protests and stop the agitation and things will only get worse when they're stronger. That has been the mode of the operation uh, throughout uh, their history since 1979. So I do not think that they will decide to change all of a sudden. Right. So life wouldn't change immediately, would it, as far as if this is true? And like you say, if they've temporarily uh, stopped the morality police, what would that mean for women who maybe were seen in public not wearing the long clothes or not dressing the way that that is law in that country? I could be, I believe that it could be a temporary solution while they gather intelligence on these people and then retaliate against them in the future. I truly and I have spoken to uh, uh, I have Iranian friends and, and nobody trusts that and they are not optimistic about that. It's a good sign that the mullahs believe that they are weak. Um, that could actually uh, encourage protesters to hold the grounds because this is not just about Masha Armenia and it's not just about the headscarf. That snowballed into uh, a protest against Islamic theocracy and its tyrannical uh, of control of every aspect of society of the Iranian people. So that even if they decide to completely abolish the morality police, as they say, which I highly doubt, I, I, think, I think that doesn't solve the, the current demands of the protesters. And the only reason they are doing, making that concession right now is because they know the protesters now want the regime gone. It has, it's, it's gone far beyond the initial demands. What do you think this will do then for the future of protests and protesters in that country? I don't think they will stop because, as I said, it's now about abolishing Islamic theocracy in Iran. And the mullahs will never do that because that means that it would cancel them and uh, they would have to give up the power. And that's never going to happen. So what I fear is escalated violence towards the protesters 
when they hold their ground against the mullahs because I don't think it's going to stop. I don't think they are going to be satisfied with these statements, especially that they know that these mullahs lie constantly when they uh, talk to the uh, people or talk to Westerners. All right. Uh, Cynthia Farahant, thank you so much for joining us. It was lovely to talk to you this morning. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. All right. Cynthia Farahant, an Egyptian-American author of The Secret Apparatus, also a political analyst and a counterterrorism expert. This is Mornings with Simi. It's time for us to take a look at some health news. And uh, could a new drug developed at UBC actually change the face of cancer treatment? Well, joining us to talk about that is Stephen Choi, postdoctoral cancer researcher at UBC. Thank you so much for being with us. Hi, thank you for having me. Well, this is really exciting and so interesting looking at this first-of-its-kind type of drug. Tell us exactly what it is that you've been researching and what this drug is like. Right. So my research primarily focuses on an intersection between how cancer cells use energy and how our body's own immune system is able to get rid of cancer cells. And so one of the very interesting things about cancer cells is that they use energy differently the normal cells. And so what ends up happening is that they make a lot of lactic acid. And so for many, many years, a lot of scientists and researchers just thought lactic acid was just a useless waste product that cancer cells had to deal with. But when it came to my research, we we're looking at how lactic acid can actually be a very um, useful chemical, at least from the cancer's perspective, to stop the patient's immune cells from attacking it. And so our drug is hoping to focus on stopping the cancer cells from secreting so much lactic acid. And then hopefully that is able to give us a good uh, cancer therapeutic. Interesting. And when we're talking about lactic acid, I think uh, most times when we hear that, we think of exercising or or building it up that way. Are we talking Mm -hmm. about the same kind of thing? Yes, it is. And so there are some ways in which normal cells make lactic acid. So say, for example, yeah, you're staying under like heavy exercise conditions and things like that. Um, but most of the time, um, it is only like in those very specific scenarios, whereas cancer cells seems to just do it all the time, like make a lot of lactic acid all the time. And like you said, too, so this was just for the most part being ignored or, or cancer researchers weren't looking this looking at this as kind of, I guess, part of the, the bigger picture. What led you, though, to, to focus on that and to look at how the lactic acid was connected to this? Right. So um, this started out as a PhD project for me. And so I was working with my supervisor. And at that point in time, kind of just as a fresh grad student, they're like, well, why don't you do something that's a little bit riskier, a little bit more challenging, right? Just you're starting out, you've got time and you've got like the youth and the energy to do it. And so my supervisor suggested, well, this seems like it's a possible, it's a possible ignored area of cancer research. And so he just asked me to dig into it. And how long have you been looking at this? Right. So as a project, we've been doing this for almost 10 years now at this point. Yeah. And me with a grad student. Yeah. Right. And I mean, it sounds like a long time, but when we look at, I think, in the bigger picture of research and such, probably, Mm -hmm. probably not. Um, I understand Mm -hmm. as well, you've been given an award for innovation and for your work in this. Yes. Yes, that's right. Um, I got the MITAC Innovation Award for postdocs. 
And, and what does this mean, do you think, when we look at cancer treatments and treatments that can be very invasive, that can make people very sick and, and take a long time to recover from? Is this something, do you think, that could lead to, to a whole different type of cancer treatment? That is definitely the hope. Um, like granted, there's still a lot of experiments to do and a lot of testing to do before we can confirm it. But the hope is that because we're focusing on something that's cancer-specific, right? in this case, it is the way that cancer cells use energy um, that normal cell doesn't use or doesn't do. And so that way, hopefully, we can minimize the side effects and reduce um, the toxicity of this drug. And specifically then, if we're talking about, say, cancer tumors, and again, the the making of the lactic acid and, and suppressing it, is it something then that that could potentially is it does it s- slow down the progression of of cancer or or does it even is the hope then that it it stops it completely? So actually, it's both. Um, that, that that is one of the very interesting things about this project is that our hope is to be able to target both. And so, because cancer cells themselves need to use energy in order to grow, and so if we can stop their way of making energy, then of course it will have an effect on cancer cells. Will be able to kill cancer cells directly. But then I think there's also the other aspect in which um, there are other, like when it comes to just uh, progressing and becoming more aggressive, and for example, like going into other organs, um, hopefully our drug is able to counter that as well. Does it matter what kind of cancer we're talking about or dealing with? Um, For the most part, uh, of course it does. Like There will always be different cancers with different characteristics. And so for now, our focus is aimed primarily at prostate cancer and especially the difficult-to-treat aggressive types. But we know that um, beyond prostate cancer, a lot of different other kinds of cancer also use this way of generating energy. So, so for, for example, breast cancer does it, lung cancer does it, liver cancer does it, kidney cancer does it. And, of course, a lot of just generally aggressive cancers also do this. And so our hope is that our drug, if it works, if it's successful, can be applied to a lot of different cancer types. And so at what stage is it at? Like you said, you've been working on this or doing this study for about 10 years. What happens next as far as your research? Right. So hopefully we will be able to have a drug ready for clinical trials within two to four years. But like, as you said, research takes a long time. And so even though we've been at it for 10 years, a lot of it, just because it is a new hypothesis, a new scientific thought, just was about getting the data and doing the experiments to prove that it is actually, actually true before we can even start making a drug. And so that was what the last five to seven years was about. And then now we're moving into really the drug development phase of this project. Which I would imagine is really exciting. When you look at mm-hmm. kind of the, the history of cancer treatment, I think people are familiar with, with chemotherapy, whether personally mm-hmm. or they know somebody. Uh, and then right. more recently, immunotherapy, which, which seems more focused uh, kind of, and now something like this, it just it seems so interesting to, to see how things do change. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so our, our hope is to be able to build on all of these existing therapies that are there, right? Immunotherapy, of course, being one of the major arms that we are researching. And so hopefully we can build all these successes and to be able to create a drug that is more effective and less toxic for patients. And you mentioned, so if it goes to a clinical trial, then in the next two to four years, and what's the, the and then I would imagine, so it's um, whatever happens at the clinical trial will be dependent on that uh, to kind of figure mm-hmm. out the next steps? Right, exactly. And so we have to make sure that it is safe for patients um, and that it is effective in in treating the tumor. So there is still some ways to go. Uh, Do you know if anybody else, are there other researchers or other uh, postdoctoral students anywhere that that are doing this kind of research? 
so as far as I'm aware of, like, of course, yes, there will be other researchers worldwide mainly that, that is, uh, like, asking along similar, like, questions along the similar lines. But as far as I know, maybe in Canada, uh, not so much. Hmm. And and you touched on this, but how important is it as well that all of this research getting to a point where not only is it a treatment for cancer and for these tumors, but also something that can be produced at a lower cost? Right. So that is definitely one of our hopes is that we do know that, like, thankfully in Canada, we have a healthcare system that does cover the cost of drugs. But knowing that, like, regardless, it is a heavy financial burden to our government and, of course, in other places in the world. Uh, these these drugs do not come like cheaply, and so our hope is that if it does work, we would be able to make it at a at a cost that is lower than what is like traditionally done. All right. Well, Stephen, it was great talking to you about this. What interesting mm-hmm. research that you've been doing at UBC. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for joining us with this. And thank you so much for having me. Our- All right. Thank you again. That is Stephen Choi, a postdoctoral cancer researcher at the University of British Columbia. And again, developing what could very well be the first of its kind drug that could fundamentally change the treatment of aggressive cancer tumors. If you want to talk about this or anything on your mind, give us a call on the buzz line 604-331-BUZZ. That is 604-331-2899. You can email me as well, Jill at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Jill Bennett in for Simi this week. Well, after a year that saw food prices climb by numbers we had not seen in decades, the cost of groceries in this country, well, it's expected to continue going up in 2023. At least that is suggested in the latest Canada Food Price Report, which was released earlier today. Joining us to talk more about this is Samantha Taylor, a professor of accountancy for the Rose School of Business at Dalhousie University, also co-author of the 2023 food price report. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me, Jill. Can you talk a little bit about the the numbers? Food prices is expected going up by another 5 to 7% on average. Yes, uh, so that's correct. Uh, So in 2022, we're seeing uh, final numbers of about $15,222 to feed a family of four. And right now, uh, pardon me, we're forecasting uh, an increase of over $1,000 to $16,288 to feed the family of four for 2023. And I understand as well, I've been hearing on the news uh, that some of the areas where prices are going up, things like vegetables, does the report kind of break down why we're seeing prices go up specifically in these different types of food groups? Um, I think really to understand why prices are forecasted to increase in 2023, we have to first look at why prices increased in 2022, especially why did they increase more than perhaps was expected. So if I may, uh, we saw the war in Ukraine really have an impact uh, to our food prices for 2022. That combined with inflation is at a 40-year high. Uh, We're still seeing impacts to the COVID-19 supply chain as well as high oil prices and labor shortages, uh, therefore increasing uh, cost of labor. All of these have combined uh, to really increase food prices in 2022, and we're going to continue to feel that increase in effect into 2023. 
which isn't great news when you talk yeah. about what that means for if we just look at a, a family of four or kind of a, a typical household. Uh, but when we look at those areas, so where where are we expecting it then to see the biggest increases? Well, we're seeing increases across the board, uh, the lowest being fruits 3 to 5% and the highest being veggies at 6 to 8%. All right. And and is that for the reasons that you just outlined? Uh, I'm guessing that's why we're seeing uh, specifically, sorry, uh, things like vegetables that are becoming much more expensive. Yes, absolutely. So supply chain, uh, we're seeing the tail end of COVID-19 supply chain issues, as well as uh, trucking um, and transport for the veggies, um, uh, you know, the fuel prices and just the prices to get the products to consumers. Absolutely. And I know with uh, this report, one of the goals is to not only tell people where they're going to see the biggest price increases, what's going to be more expensive, but also being able to plan accordingly. And I would imagine, too, people are taking uh, the information in this report and even uh, kind of changing what they buy, how much they buy, or maybe even their food choices. Yeah, we have been hearing reports about uh, consumers changing their buying uh, they're buying behaviors, you know, swapping out certain products. And uh, we also see with the tightening and shortening of our economy in 2022, which will also carry into 2023, uh, the luxury goods. You know, nobody's spending, um, you know, very few people are spending $30 for a steak anymore, which in turn will actually have a good effect in the sense that demand will dissipate and therefore the prices should decrease. Uh, but yes, we are seeing people make out swaps. Uh, we also have some, you know, some advice as far as how to stretch out the different products that are more expensive and including, you know, the canned or frozen options in order to really, you know, maintain the nutritious aspects of the family meal, but also decrease the impact of the pocketbook. Uh, I saw one of those tips or, or the idea of freezing, of, say, vegetables that are that are going to expire soon and maybe you don't have time or, or you're not going to use them right mm-hmm. away. And that's something, too. I mean, it's it's pretty simple when you think about it, but could make a difference. Oh, it makes a big difference. You know, whether or not you prefer fresh and you intersperse some frozen with your items or just being really conscious about food waste. I teach cost management and for businesses, the same principles apply to consumers. Uh, you're going to pay, the cost is going to be the price that you pay and the volume that you use. So if you can really utilize most of what you purchase right there, that's going to be huge, huge um, cost savings for a family. Our report is based off of um, a waste, a food waste of 5%. And so if you can get your food waste even below that, you're going to see significant improvements um, based on your specific uh, position and household budget relative to this report. And, and do you think it's more difficult, though, and I know that this report looks at, at a family of five and looking at food costs that way, uh, but inevitably when we talk about things like buying in bulk and, and freezing, for people who are, say, a single person household or even two people, uh, it can be a couple of things. So if you can't afford to buy that much all at once and also having the space to, to freeze it mm. or to keep things. For sure. So another way to reduce your food cost and food waste is to, it might be sound counterintuitive, but if you purchase small amounts, but more often, so if you can incorporate that in your week-to-week shop, uh, perhaps it is going to the grocery store on your lunch hours and scoping out some deals, and then utilizing what's on sale, and then typing it into an app and seeing what meals that you can make with that. Uh, I think at the end of the day, it's you know, creating a plan, something that can excite you. Because like you said, there's limitations, whether it's 
space, uh, you know, the amount of volume or, you know, just straight up time and energy. I think what's really important is that Canadian consumers find something that's really exciting to them, whether it's shopping the sales, looking for loyalty discounts, um, if they are seniors or students looking for discount days, uh, perhaps it's, you know, a number of single people or a couple of people, you know, um, going with friends to grocery stores or just, you know, shopping strategically. Whatever excites you, go for it. I do. I have noticed recently a lot of people are using the apps, the um, the apps that have the places, whether it's markets or restaurants that are having the food that they're either, they're going to throw away anyway because mm-hmm. it's close to being expired. And so many people seem to be taking advantage of that and getting some really great deals. Oh, absolutely. Yep. Uh, you mentioned the the people, so not a lot of people say spending $30 to buy a steak, be it at the butcher or the grocery store. What does that say then about food prices? And we're going to see this increase in 2023, but when might we see things kind of either coming back down or stabilizing? Oh, absolutely, Jill. So we anticipate seeing some price leveling off towards the uh, latter half of 2023. So July and beyond, we are expecting, you know, that impact of that less, um, you know, demand for the higher price goods, you know, the impact of the economic tightening, but also an increase to the Canadian dollar. So an increase in our purchasing power as a country when we're buying our imports. And that'll all work its way up to uh, Canadians on the shelves. All right. Uh, that is some good news. So on a, on a more positive note, so we'll leave it there. Samantha Taylor, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you so much, Jill. This is Mornings with Simi. Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi this week. Well, if you are a music lover, perhaps you want to share with people what music you listen to throughout the year. If that is the case, then you may have been caught up in the sensation of Spotify wrapped. It certainly is becoming a social media sensation. What does it mean, though, for the artists, for the people who are sharing their music? Joining us to talk a little bit more about this is Eric Alper, a publicist as well, a music commentator. Thank you, Eric, so much for being with us. No problem. Thank you so much for having me. I will fully admit I was not aware of just what a big deal Spotify Wrapped has become and people sharing this often the first week in December. So I do have to ask you, are you caught up in this sensation? Um, Yeah, because sometimes I'm surprised at what um, first of all, how much information Spotify knows about me. Um, and, and second, just what it actually thinks about me in terms of my listening personality, because they seem to have adopted um, a number of different um, kind of cool names for people like the adventurer or the early adopter or the deep diver. The deep diver is the one that bypasses the hits and kind of goes for song number six on the album or number eight. Um, the adventurer tends to listen to new music within a certain period of time before it becomes a hit. And all of that stuff kind of feeds into my and other people's ego about look how cool we are, look at what kind of music we are, and more importantly, Look at what artist or band that I'm in the top 0.1% of, because that's, you know, since the days of high school, music is always the great tool to let people know um, about your personality. That is absolutely true. Uh, so how does it actually work if you're caught up like you or if you're, if you're participating in Spotify Wrapped? 
Yeah, I, I think, you know, the the one thing is that everybody has to. I mean, it all depends on whether or not if, if you choose to share it. But what they take a look at is your listening um, songs and, you know, are you willing to engage with older tunes versus newer ones? Are you, you know, looking at different playlists that are more classic rock, or are you looking for more of the Spotify hits one? Um, and they're also looking for your loyalty towards artists versus a variety of them. If you like to listen to songs and artists on repeat, that tells them something a little bit more than people who return to not necessarily the same songs, but maybe the same artists. And then it's also the kind of music that you listen to as well. If you listen to, say, Taylor Swift, you're probably most likely to listen to Ed Sheeran or Drake. But if you're an adventurer, maybe you're listening to Miles Davis, Guar, The Wiggles, and Ed Sheeran all in the same day. <laughs> what a day that would be. <laughs> what a day you're having. And, that's, and that day is called Monday in Eric Alper's office. <laughs> there you go. Uh, were there any surprises then when you look back at the year or when it kind of wraps it all up for you and shows what kind of a listener you are uh, as far as uh, do you kind of think, oh, yeah, that makes sense. That's what I listen to. Or or do people maybe are reflecting back or kind of maybe even forgot some of the things I, they were listening to? Yeah, I think it all depends on how deep you want to go into, you know, because it's one thing to, sh- to say um, that a lot of the music that person A might be listening to is pop music. And you can dive deep into, well, who mostly listens to pop music? They tend to be a little bit more extroverted. They tend to be a little bit more hardworking with high self-esteem. They like to go out more. They like to be bouncy a lot, as opposed to, say, country music artists, which tend to be outgoing just as much, but tend to be a little bit more conservative. Um, They like songs that kind of focus on heartbreak, so they're maybe more emotional when it comes to your relationships. And surprisingly, studies have shown that people who like to listen to rock and heavy metal music tend to be more gentle and creative and introverted. They also have a little bit low self-esteem. So it's an interesting value mark that psychiatrists have already tried to figure out for years what kind of music you listen to and how your personality matches up with that. It's interesting now to go to Spotify's list of wrapped and see, yeah, I'm kind of all of that. And so that's where people can dig a little bit deeper if they wanted to. I understand as well that some are using this phenomenon and and the people getting all taking part in Spotify Wrapped to raise issues, I suppose, or concerns about artists and the pay artists receive and whether or not they're they're being paid enough. Do you think that is also part of the conversation? Yeah, and it's definitely part of the conversation from the artist point of view because they get their own version of Spotify wrapped of how many minutes they've been listened to from how many countries um, and how many um, you know streams they have over the course of a year. And it's kind of, it's great to see, but it's kind of backfiring on Spotify a little bit because most artists aren't Ed Sheeran and Taylor Swift. They're not in the, in the top 1% of people who never need to complain about how much artists make. It's the middle of the 99% of the the triangle that, you know, for every million streams that artists get, 
they get about $4,000 worth of revenue, and they have to share that with the record label and manager and lawyer and distributor of their music. So it might even be almost half of that. So let's say $2,000. Well, over the course of a year, that's not a lot of money to be made when you're trying to get a million streams. So artists are using the Spotify rap to show, thank you so much for listening. Look at how much people have listened to me. But the reality is I'm not making nearly as much money as you think it is. And then I've seen some kind of justification of that as well, saying, oh, but look at the free exposure you're getting and yeah. that people are talking about you as well. Are there any concerns about the amount of information Spotify is getting about people or sharing about people? It's not necessarily that, but I think it's. It, I think artists and look. I, I've been in, in the music industry for almost thirty years, so I can play on both sides of of this argument. But I tend to be on the argument of look this. This country of Canada is really, really tough to play coast to coast. There, there weren't a lot of artists that could actually take three weeks out of their lives and go out on tour over and over and over again in hopes that they make it. You know, only you know, less than a handful of artists today that are playing are even going to make a profit on their next album, more or less. Um, so this having Spotify, having YouTube is a really great way for artists to at least attempt to get their music heard. It does lower the playing field where you can record a song in your studio place or your home and upload it onto Spotify, the same platform that the Beatles are on um, in a matter of days. The problem is that you're on the same platform as the Beatles, and that's your competition. So it's easier and harder at the same time. It's just different. Right. That makes uh, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, we've only got a couple of minutes, but Eric, yeah. before I let you go, I did want to ask you, we are, here it is, December 5th. Uh, you mentioned some of your musical tastes there. What about <laughs> Christmas music? Fan? Not a fan? Favorites? I love it. I, I mean, not only is, I, I mean, you know, it, it, it's astonishing how many songs when you realize are really about depressing topics. All I Want for Christmas is You by Mariah Carey. The lyrics are absolutely pretty depressing until you realize that you're not really listening to them, but you're listening to the bouncy music. Blue Christmas by Elvis Presley, um, Darlene Love. Uh, all of these amazing songs are about wanting and longing and missing somebody. If you can get over that, it's really great to have six weeks worth of music that nobody really listens to throughout the year. And the extreme popularity of holiday music is, again, thanks to Spotify and YouTube for making those songs available when you want to, however many times you want to. Before, you had to go down to the record store and hope that maybe they didn't sell out of Michael Buble's Christmas album. And if they did, it could be days or weeks until they get it back in again. Now you can just spark it up whenever you want to. And that's why we're seeing this week on the Billboard Hot 100, six of the top 10 songs are holiday songs, and it's just going to get bigger and bigger as the weeks go on. That is very true. Uh, Eric, thank you so much for this. Always great to chat with you. So thanks for joining us this morning. Thank you so much for having me, and we'll talk soon. Sounds good. That is Eric Alper, publicist, also music commentator. You can check out his website. It is thatericalper.com.